0: Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show. The bells of the LRT are clanging again. Do you have any idea what line five is? And the COVID confusion continues around vaccine. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Look at it. I can almost see the light. It's the train that's taking us out of the COVID tunnel. Thank goodness.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It looks like the LRT is a go in the hammer. Yeah. Since this all started before I was born, excuse me if I reserve my excitement until I hear the clanging of the bell. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. here. Scott Thompson!
0: I think he's got the cynicism Ted Michaels, doesn't he? I'm kidding, Teddy. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, get back at the station, uh, the train station. Keeping the uh, Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, send us a note via the website, scottthompson at 900chml.com. All right. Uh, great news for Hamiltonians, uh, especially if you're on the side of LRT. And that is uh, the official am- uh, announcement uh, was just made a little earlier. Here's what uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger had to say about this day.
2: So, Minister Mulroney, thank you for... Uh for a, a, a great opportunity for you to come together with our, uh, pr- our federal partners, uh, Minister Mulroney, uh, Minister McKenna, uh, Minister, Minister Tassi, all of them strong, fierce women that have come together and said, we can make this happen, <clears throat> we can pull this together, and together we are better off than trying to do these things on our own. And so thank you for all of that great work. Uh, I am just nothing but impressed for that uh, for that effort.
0: All right, there you have Mayor Fred earlier this morning on the big news conference and uh with the formal announcement of what is happening. Let's bring in Caroline Mulroney provincial uh, Provincial Minister of Transportation, and is with us now, Minister, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
3: I am pleased to be with you today.
0: Uh, As the mayor obviously said, uh, this is great to see all these different uh, levels of government working together after years and years of this being on again and off again. And actually, uh, you guys canceling it at one point. How did this all come together and, and, and get everybody on the same page to finally get this project moving forward?
3: Well, it is a great day for the city of Hamilton. The province of Ontario and the federal government have agreed to come together as funding partners uh, to move forward with the LRT, but Scott, it's part of a much larger announcement. Today was the third announcement, three days in a row, of Zoom uh, press conferences announcing uh, a massive, unprecedented and historic agreement between the province and uh, and uh, the federal government to fund uh, Ontario's transit priorities. $12.8 billion in federal funding is flowing to the province of Ontario as a result of this agreement, and uh, today we're pleased to announce that Hamilton. Uh, Will receive 1.7 million from the province and 1.7 million, sorry, 1.7 billion from the province and 1.7 billion from the federal government to move forward with the LRT.
0: So, uh, Chad Collins, Councillor Chad Collins was on the Bill Kelly Show just after this announcement was made. I want to play you a clip of what he
4: had to say. This is uh, Councillor uh, Collins, and I, I think there's speak, there's a lot um, I think here as it relates to transparency or lack thereof, and. Um, you know, and these discussions have been taking place over the last couple of months without any council input. And and if I took the last comments to mean that this is a post-pandemic infrastructure project rather than a transit project, then the normal course would be for council to have some deliberation around the table about infrastructure needs and to make a formal application to the provincial and or federal governments. That's the normal pro- course of business. And, and unfortunately, this is this is a political announcement today. Um, I would have lots of questions in terms of what what's required of the city. And uh, I think it's it speaks to the whole issue of where we've been in, with this in the past. It was a handshake political agreement that brought the, the first announcement from the Wynn government. And now it looks like there have been some backroom deals cut between a handful of people to bring the announcement to, to what we have here today. Minister, your thoughts on what Councillor Collins had to say?
3: Well... Um Early last year, I struck a task force, a transportation task force for the city of Hamilton that issued a number of recommendations, including uh, that the province look to move forward with the LRT project uh, in conjunction with uh, the federal government as a full funding partner. Um, And so that's what we did. We've acted on those recommendations that were made public. In addition, uh, earlier this year, the province nominated the Hamilton LRT as our fifth priority transit project. Um, and so I don't think it's any surprise, should be any surprise to anyone that we were moving forward with it. We've been engaging with the federal government. We're so happy that they did join us at the table um, and that they have come forward as a 50 50 funding partner for the LRT. This is a, a very important transit project for the city of Hamilton and it's an economic project. And I've heard loud and clear how important the LRT is to the city of Hamilton. And I think you heard the mayor say today that. Um, municipalities across the province of Ontario would be very happy to receive this kind of of, a, of an offer, of this kind of a project and forward with, hmm. with the level of funding that's associated with it.
0: Uh, at what point moving forward does council uh, become involved, uh, specifically about operating costs, that sort of thing? At, at what point will they feel involved?
3: Well, the province, the next step is that uh, Metrolink, will be engaging with the city of Hamilton on its um on the costs associated with operation operations and and maintenance and uh and so you know as the mayor said uh, we'll be working with them to to finalize that but the the next steps with respect to the city are up to the city and so I would uh, I would put those questions directly to the mayor
0: uh, what about timing for this? We've heard the is, uh, people use uh, the timing is perfect for all of this, although a lot of this was chatted about prior to this pandemic. But how does the pandemic change things, Minister?
3: Well, the pandemic has changed everything in terms of uh, there was an imperative to create jobs before, but that has become even more important today. Um, you know, we are looking for shovel-ready projects that will create jobs today, but also lay the groundwork for uh economic development and prosperity in the future. And so that's what this project does. And um and in terms of the timing, you know, we we did a lot of work around the business case, we will be refining that and uh, we're looking to get the procurement restarted as, as quickly as we can.
0: Uh, obviously, when this was announced by the Prime Minister just the other day, uh, he made a point of saying the, the, the route from McMaster to all the way to uh, Centennial Parkway, which was the original plan. Uh, was that ever was it ever an option to short it? shorten it? How come you decided to go with the full meal deal here?
3: Well, um, we canceled the original LRT because, as you know, um, the Auditor General confirmed that the Liberals had underreported the true costs of the LRT. Uh, when we started our negotiations with the federal government, um, it was presented that uh, we could unlock additional federal dollars if we were able to match, their, match the contribution that would get us all the way to Eastgate. And so, uh, you know, that's a good deal for Ontario taxpayers. And um, and so with $3.4 billion, we'll be able to extend the LRT all the way to, Esca- uh, to Eastgate. <laughs>
0: And what about the, uh, the next steps as far as uh, the bidding process for construction, this sort of thing? Wh- when do we start to see the actual physical next steps here?
3: We're going to start working on next steps right away, engaging with the city. Metrolinx is going to work on finalizing the business case, and together with Infrastructure Ontario, they'll be putting together the procurement packages.
0: Uh, city uh, citizens in the city some are still uh concerned about this project i certainly don't want to go backwards and, and 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 dredge up old arguments and such but you certainly uh, heard uh you know the the feelings of the councilor and such what can you say to citizens in the city in regard to operating costs and and how much it will cost the city because I think citizens are still concerned even though they've got this 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 transit system and again as you so rightly pointed out funding by both these levels of government, they still want to know how much it's going to cost them.
3: Well, absolutely. Look, the province is going to be having discussions with the city on that with respect to contributions for the day-to-day operating and maintenance costs, but also the role that farebox revenue from the LRT can play, and that was, that was always anticipated. But what I would say to the people of the city of Hamilton is this is a historic day. Together the federal government and the provincial government have come together to announce $3.4 billion in capital funding for a new LRT which will create construction jobs over the next few years and then also opportunity for decades to come. So it's a great day for the city of Hamilton.
0: All right, Caroline Mulrooney has been with us, Provincial Minister of Transportation. Caroline, thank you so much for the time. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Mayor Fred Eisenberger, city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Mayor Fred, how are you? I'm sure you're still on cloud nine.
2: Um, yeah, Scott, uh, the, uh, I-, I affectionately call it the Eisenberger Express, seems to be back on track. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited, pretty enthused, pretty uh, grateful to our pre- Provincial and federal governments to come back to this, especially the province, who you know, as you know, the journey has been a little tortured, but they've uh, they've come to realize the the benefit and the value of LRT, and so we now have two levels of government saying LRT is the best uh, opportunity for the city of Hamilton, uh, the best economic uplift, the best climate change initiative, the best transportation opportunity. Uh, all of the parameters around what uh, what the value of LRT was in the first place, and so now we have uh, the previous provincial government, the liberal government uh, supportive we have the NDP in Hamilton very supportive and the, the the official opposition very supportive of LRT we have the federal liberal government supportive of LRT and putting money on the table and uh, and 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 for Hamilton, we are the one and only uh, to my knowledge. Uh, uh, LRT, Rapid Transit Project, that is 100% funded by other levels of government. Uh, it, it is a gift to the city of Hamilton. Uh, all we need to do is uh, come up with the operating and maintenance, which uh, we have some great estimates for, which, which, which ranges between 5 and $10 million. And so for that, uh, offset by additional tax revenue as a result of the economic uplift that comes with LRT. So, uh, you know what, from all, it checks all the boxes, and I would hope to think that uh, as the, as the uh, Minister McKenna and Minister Mulroney said today, this is an LRT project. It's an economic stimulus project. Uh, if you fail to, uh, to move forward on it, the money will go elsewhere
0: uh as you mentioned uh it seems everybody now involved in this however uh city council may be not feeling the love uh here's a clip of what councillor chad collins had to say uh with bill kelly earlier on this morning
4: you know these discussions have been taking place over the last couple of months without any council input and and if i took the last comments to mean that this is a post-pandemic infrastructure project rather than a transit project then the normal course would be for council to have some deliberation around the table about infrastructure needs and to make a formal application to the provincial and/or federal governments. That's the normal pro- course of business, and and now it looks like there have been some backroom deals cut between a handful of people to bring the announcement to to what we have here today.
0: Uh, your response, Mayor, on what the councillor had to say. Well, so
2: Mr. Mr. Collins shouldn't all be surprised that the province of Ontario, you know, a short while ago, a few months ago. Uh, made LRT a, uh, a, a project uh, priority for the bundle of projects that they were negotiating with the federal government. That was well publicized. In fact, a staff report came to uh, city council informing, uh, city council that, uh, that was, that was happening. Uh, the official position of the city of Hamilton has been and remains, uh, a request to have LRT funded 100% by the federal, uh, by other levels of government. And uh, with the the memorandum of understanding that, you know, majority, vast majority of members of council were all a party, to That got us to where we were just prior to the uh, project being canceled. Uh, You know, support all the way through from members of council to move the project ahead. And so, uh, you know, Chad Collins was the one councillor that uh, that did indicate uh, some opposition uh, later in the game. Uh, And uh, I would say that, uh, you know, this is now revisionist thinking. This is not skulldudgery. This is not backroom deals. This is uh, the federal and provincial government responding to what has been and continues to be the official position of the city of Hamilton to request an LRT, uh, fully funded by, fully capital funded with no capital contribution from the city, and a, uh, a, uh, a responsibility for the city to look at the operating and maintenance agreement.
0: Uh, and as you mentioned, I can't think of another city that's been given 100% uh, capital uh, funding costs for something like this. However, there still are some Hamiltonians uh, that are skeptical about all of this. What can you tell them about what this will cost, uh, the city? Again, it's up to the city uh, to, to handle operating and maintenance costs. Uh, again, when, you've, when you're receiving, uh, what is it, $3.4 billion, what can the city look forward to paying for?
2: So operating and maintenance, uh, day-to-day operating and maintenance is defined as, uh, you know, to staff to run the, run the line, to to clean the vehicles when they come in, to keep them in good repair. Uh, I've got a 2018 report in front of me here that went to council, you know, has, has gone to council all the way through, that has indicated a net cost to the city for uh, operating and maintenance, for maintenance uh, at... Uh, $2, $3.2 million to $3.9 million. This is now $2018. So you could add a 2% escalator to that to come up with current numbers. So might be higher than that for the operating. And on the transit side, uh, there was a cost of uh, three point two to $3.9 million to operate. So if you look at those numbers, uh, the highest number you could come to currently today would be in the order of some $7 million, which is consistent with, the estimates or the actual numbers that we've seen in Kitchener Waterloo or in Ottawa or other places that have similar lines, uh, uh, uh your Ontario actually, Mississauga, that have similar lines. And the, you know, the oddity about operating and maintenance is th- this will be a procured contract that will happen once you're close to some sub- substantial completion of the project, and so you would put that out for procurement, but you're working from you know, very well-defined estimates, and the report in front of me is very well-defined. It, it, it talks about snow clearing, talks about maintenance of the line, talks about uh, you know any future repairs that have to be done on a day-to-day basis, and so these estimates are pretty darn accurate. And so the maximum amount that uh, that uh, you know you we could anticipate, I can't say the maximum amount. It might escalate from here to some degree, but right now the estimate would be somewhere in the order of. million per year for the operating, offset by, Scott, and we've talked about this many times, Mm -hmm. offset by the additional tax revenue that comes with uh, the investments that happen along the line. And if we look at Kitchener-Waterloo as, you know, probably the closest example, they've, they've generated $3 billion of additional development that translates into somewhere between $15 to $20 million of additional tax revenue off of existing infrastructure. So at the end of the day, it's actually a net gain for the city. And, you know, my comparative to it is when we built the expressway, and I think we talked about this before as well, there was an operating cost to the expressway. And the operating cost of the expressway today is $7 million. Uh, But we knew at the time that the additional tax revenue coming out of that would uh, generate some $14 million. So we were ahead $7 million on that project in terms of day-to-day operating and additional tax revenue that comes out of that so the folks that are saying this is going to be a massive burden on the the municipality is just false Uh, most of them know that not to be true Uh, they've had the reports on this that indicates what the uh, the costs uh, should be it would be estimated to be and they also know that there's additional revenue coming as a result of the economic uplift which is 50 percent of why we're doing this project 50 percent for improved transit connections 50% Fifty percent about the economic uplift that comes with it, which is renewal along the entire corridor and especially uh, east of James uh, on King Street.
0: Uh, this more of a roller coaster ride than a, a trip on an LRT over the years uh, for everybody, I guess, in the city. Uh, Mayor Fred, did you ever think, man, this is done? It ain't going to happen. And and did you hark back on those times uh, in this last week when it, when it obviously looked like it was going over the finish line?
2: So I've, uh, I've always believed that uh, this is the right project for the city of Hamilton. I've uh, never given up on it. I have not been part of the negotiations that uh, that, that have been talked about. I've been uh, an advocate for LRT. I've talked to the prime minister about it. I've talked to Minister McKenna about it. I've talked to Minister Mulroney and the premier, uh, all of whom over time indicated that they supported the notion and, and the, re- the direction that the city of Hamilton was officially uh, asking for. And so uh, I've always believed that sooner or later this project's going to happen. If I consider timing now, uh, you know, so I'm looking at a poster right now, Hamilton, Hamilton LRT is a go, which is the front page uh, uh, section of the spectator <laughs> oh, going back to 2015.
1: Oh man! Uh, if
2: I think about it now and I think about, you know, what what, what, be, what would be the best time to have this happen? I can't think of a better time than right now post pandemic when the economy is struggling and we need economic uplift not only here but right across the country we need to put people to work and we need to be shovel ready and i think the ministers both made this uh, very clear that they're looking for shovel ready projects not some pie in the sky that we have to start all over again this has been designed it's been uh, analyzed evaluated environmental assessments have been done all the preparatory work has been done to get it to procurement uh, so the timing Uh, couldn't happen at a better time. And I think that has to be reflected on when we make our final decisions on signing on to a memorandum of understanding with both the federal and provincial governments that, you know, we need this. This is employment. This is opportunity. This is 7,000 jobs uh, over the life of the contract. Uh, If a company came to us today and said, I will bring you 7,000 jobs, we uh, we would move heaven and earth to have that happen in our municipality. And that's exactly what this will do
0: uh so that being said we've only got a few seconds left here uh what next when can we actually see the disruption the the great construction that's about to start
2: well uh, i think next steps is that uh metrolinks and uh, infrastructure ontario and others will need to come to city council to explain the exact uh, details around how this is going to proceed and uh, ultimately, the city will have to sign an, uh, a memorandum of understanding with the federal and provincial governments, which we had previously done with the province of Ontario, which essentially set out how we were going to proceed. That was all largely supported by, you know, the majority of members of council. And so that will need to be done. And I think, uh, you know, people owe it to themselves to uh, hear that presentation. We've already asked them to appear. And I know that uh, the the invitation has been uh, heard. Uh, they were waiting to make an announcement. They will be coming, you know, soonish and then we'll uh, ultimately have to sign on to that memorandum of understanding and that'll be the critical time for the city of hamilton to uh, to put their stamp on this and to hopefully make this uh, move forward collectively so that we can get the benefits of all that we've talked about today climate change uh, effects job opportunities improved transit curbing urban sprawl and and intensifying the corridor and renewal all of them uh, check boxes that we can put a check mark in
0: Mayor Fred Eisenberger has been with the city of Hamilton Uh, Good news officially announced today uh, Both the uh, provincial and federal government uh, Are going to combine to get the LRT built Fred, congratulations I think it's a big day for the city of Hamilton And uh, kudos to you for keeping the the spirit alive Congratulations
2: Thank you, Scott Appreciate it We'll uh, look forward to next steps You're listening to
5: the
0: Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. The
2: commentary is coming
6: up.
0: Has anyone heard of the line five pipeline? Does anyone know what the line five pipeline is? Does anyone know it was supposed to be shut down yesterday? Does anyone know what will happen if line five does shut down? My guess is you answered no to all of the above, and that is extremely sad and completely uninformed, considering it is a vital energy artery that delivers more than half of the petroleum products used in Ontario and 66% of what is consumed in Quebec and provides vital home heating oil and propane throughout Ohio and Michigan, whose governor wants it shut off this is what happens when we do not invest in our energy industry and we rely on others to survive we are currently experiencing the same pain while we wait for life-saving covid 19 vaccines to arrive we don't produce either the reason you have not heard about this is because justin trudeau does not want you to this does not jive with the prime minister's utopian vision for canada and it's pretty hard to win his majority election if he sticks up for pipelines and our energy industry. He spends so much of his time condemning, even though he has failed to promote how much we need these pipelines for our independence, our survival, and to transition until renewables are even possible. I'm Scott Thompson.
6: You have a, uh, literally, uh, a death uh, warning, uh, a death sentence that has been pronounced on our most important uh, aortic artery pipeline uh, in here in Canada, and uh, you know up until today and yesterday there have been very few who've talked about this imminent threat.
0: Dan McTagg, uh, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about Line Five. Good afternoon. It is one thirty-five. I'm Scott Thompson, Willers, get back at the station, keeping us between the LRT rails. The Scott Thompson home show, that is. All right. You know, it's, it's fascinating because we have talked about line five, uh, on this show largely brought up when we've done our simulcast, uh, with Calgary, Alberta. And I remember, uh, (laughs) Jacqueline, uh, or, uh, um, Jacqueline Smith saying to us, uh, way back when, uh, how come you guys aren't really concerned about Line 5? You know they're going to shut down Line 5, and it uh, provides 50% of the energy, of uh, petroleum products for Ontario, 66%, I think, for uh, Quebec and such. It is a very much a main artery uh, going from Wisconsin all the way into the United States and then back to Sarnia. So how come no one is concerned about that? And, and really, it was crickets on this right up until Uh, the day before uh, May 12th, which would have been May 11th, when uh, all of a sudden we started seeing this on the news, and that leaders were concerned. We saw Seamus O'Regan and the Prime Minister all of a sudden talking about this uh, literally on the eve that they were supposed to shut the thing down. Uh, And again, it's amazing how many in Ontario do not even know what Line 5 is. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Warren, maybe Canada Research Chair, Associate Dean, and Director of the School of Policy Studies with Queen's University and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
7: Thank you very much for having
0: me. How come we're talking about this in the 11th hour? Uh, How come politicians haven't been talking about this for months or weeks?
7: Uh, It's a really good question, and I ask myself that all the time. Uh, I think in part it's the pandemic, the fact that Uh, Our attention has been preoccupied with what's going on with the pandemic. You know, we've gone through two kind of critical waves here in Ontario uh, that really have had people thinking about that and little else. Uh, And I think that this has sort of crept in under the radar. You know, it's our energy situation in Ontario has been so stable for so long that it's hard to imagine that something could come along that would actually create some waves and create some problems for us. And yet here we are, there's something that could cause some problems coming down the line.
0: That being said, the governor of Michigan, who obviously wants this uh, pipeline shut down and shut down as of of yesterday, uh, ran an election platform on all of this. And, and again, I, I remember having colleagues from out west saying to me, who are obviously a little bit more plugged into the Canadian energy industry than those in Ontario, uh, they knew about it, and, and surprisingly enough, it just doesn't play in the east.
7: Yeah, and... It is interesting because during that campaign, I commented on this a bit. Um, there's a large uh, population or, or group of people in Michigan who really resent the fact that there's a pipeline that runs through the territory that actually uh, doesn't deliver a lot of benefit back to Michigan. It's it's delivering fuel uh, through to the Canadian side. It's primarily used um, as a way for us to get product from Alberta and Saskatchewan into the eastern provinces, uh, and for very good reasons, I think they resent that. You know, it's uh, something where Michigan takes on risk and takes on uh, uh, some responsibility, and yet uh, other places are benefiting. And you know, it's it's not hard to see why this would resonate with the electorate uh, and why the. Uh-huh. Would-
0: and, and, and again, this going back to the issue of self-sufficiency and being dependent on others, uh, we don't want to do the dirty work. We want other people to do the dirty work for us. Uh, will this increase the discussion of some sort of east-west pipeline or 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 becoming self-sufficient. I mean, we you know, we've seen what happened with the pandemic and PPE and vaccines and us not being able to handle ourselves there. We're finding the same thing with lack of energy, of self-sufficiency here. What does this do to the larger discussion of us being dependent on others?
7: Well, I think it brings it right back into the forefront. You know, we, we run into this problem, uh, it seems like Once every few months on some front, uh, we realize that we don't produce something or we don't make something or we rely heavily on somebody else to deliver it for us. Uh, In the case of our energy system, for the last 40 years, uh, the companies that are building our energy system have treated North America as a block. You know, they really look at the borders as uh, just something to deal with. Uh, They look at the geography and they try to serve the geography. They haven't tried to do it country by country. And in many ways, that's been good. It's kept prices down. It has uh, allowed for competition. But it puts us into this really awkward position. And I would not be surprised to hear people asking for a Canadian pipeline after this.
0: Um, Does it appear that Canada is not pipeline friendly? Um, You know, we've seen this with Trans Mountain, uh, Energy East uh and heaven forbid something that goes right across the country which you know you think about what the railway did when it opened up this country why don't we have a corridor that's delivering energy or uh, you know whether it's whether it's traffic rail traffic high speed rail whether it's communications whether it's energy uh electricity pipelines what have you it just seems to make sense instead of you know having this patchwork that we do
7: yeah, it, it does seem to make sense. And I suspect part of the reason that there's been pushback against pipelines, not just in Canada, but in the States and Europe and other places, uh, is that the population is now thinking, uh, broadly speaking, about uh, energy transitions. You know, And there's a lot of people, if you stop them on the street and you ask them about pipeline infrastructure they'll associate that with yesterday's energy. They'll say, well, we really should be focused on green energy and renewable energy. And I have no problem with that. I actually am a big believer in green energy and renewables. I uh, study it and work on it all the time. Um, But the average Canadian, and I would argue the average American, they don't really know how dependent we still are on those fossil fuel systems and how much we need those systems to be in place while we manage a transition. And so, you know, the knee-jerk kind of pushback and and the idea, well, we'll just shut this down and that will hurry up the transition. The fact is we just don't have the infrastructure in place to be able to produce the alternatives yet. Uh, We're not in a position where we can shut this off and not feel uh, the effects. If this line were to be shut down, and I, I don't think it will be, but if it were, it would have huge implications for our economy.
0: Are leaders doing enough to convey that message? Because it seems they're just into fashionable politics in the sense that, you know, selling green, just as an example you gave with with citizens knowing about pipelines, yeah, shut them down, shut them all down. Uh, it, it's as if maybe we should have let this actually shut down so we understood that there actually is a transition period. It doesn't appear leaders are being honest with people about that. If it, if it's anything like this, it's bad. Uh, and either one stream or the other? The solution is in the middle, I've often said. Uh, Are are leaders doing enough to to be open about what the transition period is going to be like?
7: Well, I think some have tried, you know, and the classic example is the Liberal Party buying Trans Mountain Pipeline and supporting pipeline development uh, in the West, at least with respect to that project. Uh, They took a lot of heat for that, you know, and and I'm sure there's many people inside the federal liberal party who say, well, we shouldn't have done that because, you know, it it didn't get us a lot of extra votes and it doesn't play well with uh, our constituents who would like to see the transition going faster. And yet that is the kind of pragmatic step that probably needs to be taken. We Mm -hmm. do need to maintain the infrastructure we have while we do go through a transition. We need to plan for a transition. Um, I would argue I haven't yet heard a leader uh, in Canada or the US who has been able to uh, really well uh, articulate what the transition will look like, you know, and how long it would take and and what that would involve. But I would argue that if we really want to make a transition, we need to work with what we've got, maintain what we have, not build a whole lot of new pipelines or a whole lot of new development in order to respond to the shutdown of the line. Uh, We need to use what we have and then plan for that transition. It needs to uh, be well uh, documented and well resourced.
0: Uh, You you talked about, uh, do you think one of the reasons that this isn't a top of mind issue, obviously the pandemic has gotten everybody's attention, that's completely valid, but do you think one of the reasons that we are not talking about this is because this does Conflict with the prime minister's uh, vision of Ontario, and you know it's pretty obvious he's not a big supporter of uh, of the west's uh, energy uh, production. Uh, you did say absolutely he did they did purchase the Trans Mountain pipeline and such, but he really hasn't done a lot uh, to defend any of this. Can you can you talk out of two sides of your mouth this way? Does supporting keeping Line Five open? hurt his climate change agenda. Does that conflict with it?
7: You know, I think that there's a lot of people who probably think it does. And one of the unfortunate side effects of, uh, I think, the world we live in and the availability of information and you know the polarization of the electorate is that it's really hard to have those nuanced conversations anymore. Um, you're either for or against. There's, yeah,
0: there's it's little- either drill, baby. It's either it's either drill, baby, drill or shut her down now. Like there's nothing in the middle.
7: Well, that's right, and it makes it really hard to imagine how to carry out this transition. You know, I like to think about the energy sector as a whole. Uh, the oil companies and the natural gas companies and the renewable energy companies are all playing roles. In many cases, the lines between those are blurred. You know, they're one and the same. Uh, And the companies are going to be essential to make the transition. It's not an us versus them thing. You know, we're all in it together. We need to have the conversation. uh, But, you know, we're not there yet. We haven't got all of the pieces in place. We can't do knee-jerk shutdowns of a system uh, because the pain is going to be so much worse than what we're living with now.
0: Uh do, you know you I think that one of the most valid arguments I heard was what you said earlier Warren uh when you said you know there's really not much in this for Michigan in the sense that we're just going through their territory allowing them all the risk and then shooting it back up into into Canada we know how much refinery capacity uh we have lost over the years uh we we know that the discussions to try to make an east-west uh, east-west pipeline have 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 usually stopped at Quebec uh yet we still import barrels and barrels and barrels of oil from you know dirtier uh situations uh on the east coast and such so um d- will it have to be shut down before people realize the importance here or how does this change the discussion because even if as you say it's not going to get shut off this problem's not going away
7: yeah, i don't think the problem is going away but You know, if if I do uh, an exercise in my head and I think, well, what happens if it does shut down? I think what happens is the people who are against the pipelines and against the oil industry uh, use this as more ammunition as to why we should be accelerating a change. The people who support the oil industry see this as more evidence that we need to stick with the status quo. It drives the two sides further apart rather than bringing them together. Um, and yet the answer is in the middle, you said it before, I think that we need to look at our energy sector as a whole. We need to plan a transition. Uh, we need to think about um, where we want to truly get to. And then we need to implement that transition and that's the hard part. You know, it's not easy work and it's not just deciding your uh, your side, you know, you can't just pick a side and then ride with yeah. it. There's a lot of work together we need to do.
0: And, you know, you bring up a valid point. I mean, if to shut off this tap tomorrow or yesterday, uh, the backlash would be astronomical. I mean, the economic setback would be astronomical. And the truth is, we're just not there yet. So why aren't we having those discussions as opposed to the ones on the extremes?
7: Yeah, and I think we do need to have those discussions. Part of the issue is that Canadians and Americans um, are largely energy illiterate. You know, they don't really know where their energy comes from. Uh, It doesn't help that the energy system is very, very opaque. Uh, You know, it's hard to tell when you pull up to a gas station where your gas comes from. Uh, It's hard to tell where your electricity is coming from. It's very difficult to understand where you sit inside of these systems. Uh, But I do think that, You know, we just don't know how much we rely on the existing systems. You know, if if this were happening in a decade, the conversation might sound very different because the march towards electrification and the rollout of electric vehicles and, and the electrification of our road networks, all of that will allow us to make a transition a lot more easily a decade from now than we can today. But we're not a decade from now. We're at today and we have certain needs
0: so uh at this point now obviously the deadline to shut the line five pipeline down has passed that was yesterday uh apparently this is before the courts now uh the judge saying please mediation i don't want to have to make a call here uh you said earlier you don't think this is going to shut down why do you think that what is going to happen moving forward on this
7: well there's a couple reasons i don't think it will shut down uh first of all it's, it's not just one governor's call on how the energy system works. There are treaties in place uh, between Canada and the U.S. that, that govern the flow of energy. Um, and there's also the fact that this is just one pipeline in, inside of a much larger uh, North American system, and there are many other governors, presidents, prime ministers, all of whom sort of have a say over how these things work. So <clears throat> I'm not really concerned that that there's gonna be a long-term shutdown. At the same time, you know, the governor doesn't, uh, or, or the governor does make a couple of good points. There is an environmental risk with the, uh, the pipeline, particularly at the Strait of Mackinac. There are concerns there that do have to be dealt with. Uh, I think that what we're gonna see is long-term court challenges and, and lots and lots of discussion in the courts before we get any resolution.
0: What advice do you have for Canadians on this, or, or you know, even those? Because again, it seems you're on this team or you're on that team, and I think as we both discussed, it's somewhere in the middle is the is the solution. What advice do you have for both sides on this? I mean, because it seems to me, as soon as you get the extremes going at each other, that just pushes everybody else back, and yeah, I don't know what's going on, and and it just this is it disengages everybody from the discussion when we're having you know uh, we're we're thrust into the eleventh hour and the threat of a pipeline shutting down. How do we move this into the center as opposed to uh, letting the extremes, you know, create the narrative?
7: Well, I think that the best thing that Canadians can do is to push for a plan. You know, we don't have a national energy strategy. We've tried to have them in the past. They haven't really worked out, Um, but we need one. And this, uh, you know, thing right now, this whole thing around the pipelines is just emphasising how much we need a strategy. Um, And that strategy is going to be really difficult to pull together. And there's going to be a lot of different viewpoints that come out. But we need to have those very painful conversations. We need to come up with some common goals and we need to work towards them because then it's not just a snap decision around one pipeline or one refinery or one type of energy. It's discussions in the context of the whole system. And in the context of the whole system, the day may come when it does make sense to shut down a pipeline or to shut down a refinery, but we're not quite there yet.
0: Dr. Warren maybe with us, Canada Research Chair, Associate Dean, and Director of the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
7: Thank you. You too.
0: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
4: The Prime Minister received his first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Will he be getting a second dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine, two doses of Pfizer or Moderna? or one dose of uh, Pfizer or Moderna in the future, which one will it be?
1: Right honourable Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Speaker, I, I thank the uh, honourable member for Nosehill Hill for her uh, questions about my well-being. Uh, let me assure her that I uh, talked to my doctor just last week. He recommended that I indeed get a second dose of AstraZeneca uh, in uh, the coming uh, weeks or months uh, when it becomes available, uh, when uh, when the when my turn comes up in the month of Ontar- in the province of Ontario. Uh, that is uh, what I am focused on doing. I know there are questions being asked around the world about the data that in mixing and max, matching doses. There are no recommendations around that yet, but I know scientists are leaning in carefully to see if it, uh, it may be the right option for many people. Honourable Member for Calgary, Nose Hill. Is the Prime Minister and the government recommending that people who receive
4: the first dose of AstraZeneca get a second dose of AstraZeneca with that comment he just made, or is he advising them to contact their doctor?
1: The right Honourable Prime Minister... The Prime Minister and the government don't make health recommendations. That's not my job. My job is to I shared, uh, for example, what uh, the uh, member asked, what advice I personally got from my doctor. I certainly encourage all Canadians to talk to their doctors. uh, Who will them be informed by experts and doctors both in their jurisdictions, uh, in their provinces and territories, and uh, by uh, the national guidance from NACI and from Health Canada. Uh, That is the best way to move forward. Don't take recommendations from politicians, particularly not conservatives. Take recommendations from your doctors and the experts.
0: Was there an elevator door closing there at Had- trying real quick to get that out. Uh, let's get back to uh, COVID-19. It's nice to have a little deviation around the uh, city of Hamilton aboard the LRT, even though it is only virtual uh, at this time. Uh, lots to talk about in regard to uh, COVID-19 and, uh, of course, the situation going around uh, with AstraZeneca and such. Let's bring in Dr. Omar Khan, assistant professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi there. Uh, first of all, your thoughts. We're having so, getting some preliminary information uh, from the U.K. in regard to the mixing of doses, uh, an AstraZeneca and then a Pfizer or Moderna. At this point, I think uh, it, really all we know about is safety and that so far it's safe. Slight increase in, in uh, mild side effects, but other than that, uh, it appears to be safe. When will we know more about how effective this is? Because some have said it might even be better. Uh, when will we know that?
6: Well, we know how long the immune system takes to work. It's about two weeks to start making your antibodies, and then after a further two weeks, a month, then you start getting good protective immunity. At that point, then you start thinking about the boost. So we're looking at about a month after the boost. So there's still a few more weeks to go through to get to that time. At that time, then they need to do all of the analysis. So they have to take the blood samples, and they have to measure the antibodies, measure the immune response, and and that does take a bit of extra time because it's a lot of data to go through. So I think that we're still looking at several weeks before we get that data.
0: Uh, your thoughts on what's happening across the country well from british columbia right through to uh quebec i guess pausing second doses of uh, sorry first doses of astrazeneca keeping what they have for the second your thoughts obviously i guess that's uh good in a sense that shows how much pfizer and moderna are now scheduled to come in but what are your thoughts
6: well there's a, a few things that are happening and it some of them are coincidental and some of them are obviously related to safety the fact that most places don't want to give AstraZeneca anymore as a first shot is understandable given that there are these safety concerns. And given that there are these mRNA vaccines that are coming and they're coming more regularly and in greater amounts, that changes the risk benefit. All right. But we also have to look at where these AstraZeneca vaccines are coming from and where they're needed as well. And I think that's part of the question that's happening. Are we getting more because you have an explosion of cases elsewhere in the world and these vaccines might not even get out to us because of uh, restrictions on exports from where they are being manufactured. So these are other things that we need to consider. And really when it comes down to it, when we look to the UK, the UK is further along in their vaccination program than Canada and the UK has predominantly use Pfizer and AstraZeneca And they've said that from the data they have seen, if you got a first shot of AstraZeneca and you're fine, the people who got their second shot were also fine. They didn't see any increased risk of blood clots. Now, UK also retroactively went back and looked and found a few more blood clot cases for first-dose AstraZeneca people. So it's still evolving. They're still looking at data. And I think as they learn what to look for, they may still find more things, but for now, it seems like it's okay for the second dose, but it's an evolving story, and it's, it's challenging because things are moving really fast.
0: Uh, any idea, doctor, where the six hundred and fifty thousand doses of AstraZeneca came from that are coming in this week because we were told even a few days ago I had the head of the pharmacist association on, and they said we're running out. We got about ninety seven percent or ninety seven percent of it has been stuck. We saw in arms. we saw Alberta say they only had eight thousand. Ontario said they had less than fifty thousand doses and then all of a sudden almost immediately or the next day we announced. That there's 650,000 doses of AstraZeneca coming in, and obviously all of that was suspended by India, considering where they are and they needed it as opposed to exporting it. So any idea where this last-minute drop of AZ came from, the 650,000 doses? Because, again, none of this was supposed to arrive until after June. There was no timeline.
6: Well, the interesting thing about AstraZeneca is that they have looked at distributed manufacturing, making vaccines in more than one place across the world to protect against ups and downs in production. So we know that they can be manufactured in the U.S. as well as the U.K. as well as in India. So it could have come from any one of those places. And we also know that there's challenges in India for maintaining a supply level because it's people are really, really suffering down there too, right? So it it could have been from other places. And it's not clear to me either. I'm trying to, you know, look through it, but in the end, it's, if it's coming and we have it, we should figure out what to do with it because other places in the world could really use it, and their risk-benefit is different from our risk-benefit, especially if we have the luxury of being able to lock down where other places just might not. It, it's tough.
0: It's pretty inter- it's pretty hard to decipher why these came in because again uh, it was just a day earlier that everybody said we were running out anyway so we're going to pause it and hold what we have for second doses it seems as if as soon as the provinces started pausing it all of a sudden the next day it came it was announced it was coming in which didn't make sense especially if the provinces uh, you know or a majority of provinces have said they're not interested at least yeah. for the first dose
6: I mean part of this is also Illustrating the, the challenges with logistics and global distribution of vaccines, and also uh, commitments because they're contract signed and getting vaccines out to people in satisfaction of these contracts. These are all things that are happening. And if a facility had a, for example, they made a lot of vaccines and they were held up because they're waiting to finish their final quality checks. Right. And finally, that you know, logjam has been taken care of and you have all these extra vaccines ready to go, they start fulfilling Mm. contracts. These could be part of the reasons. And we know that even for Moderna, this was a challenge because they had a lot of vaccines, but they just didn't have enough qualified people to say that, yes, this is ready to go out. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's safe. So there's a, there's a lot of pressure on these companies and, and for us seeing this stuff coming in and not having that uh, knowledge of uh, the details, it, it can be, you know, challenging.
0: Dr. Omar Khan with us, assistant professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
6: Thanks. Take care.
0: All right. Uh, here we are, uh, week number 60 of the Scott Thompson Home Show and being in this global pandemic for uh, I don't know how long now. But it was interesting at the start of all of this. We were all madly in love with our political leaders. didn't matter what the political stripe, whether it was uh, municipal, provincial, or federal. Uh, And now, after being in this for more than a year, uh, everybody's pretty cranky. And as a result, trust in uh, Canadian political leaders has uh, plummeted during the pandemic, except for Quebec, which was very odd, because if you go back to the first wave, uh, Quebec had a higher death rate than anybody, and I think still does, because the vaccines... And lockdowns have worked in the uh, second and third wave. So the death rates aren't quite as high, uh, now as they were back in the first wave of all this. But it seems that he's doing, uh, Legault is doing better. Uh, remember they were the first province to, uh, they didn't hold back any second doses whatsoever. Uh, instead just as, you know, decided, uh, decided to start administering one dose and then delay, uh the time between the first and second doses to try to get as many people vaccinated as they possibly could. And clearly that was a strategy that worked. You see their numbers down and that strategy was picked up uh right the way across the country. In Ontario, of course what uh what the Premier decided to do was uh to vaccinate those in long term care twice, seniors twice, those uh healthcare workers and and Uh, support workers that are around them, and then go into uh, the one-dose strategy. So as a result, uh, behind Quebec on that. However, uh, obviously, greatly reduced the death in uh, long-term care uh, by like 96%. So let's bring in Peter Grape, uh, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. I remember saying uh, through the first part of this and into the middle part, it seemed that the provinces were taking more heat uh, than the federal uh, government was, uh, and now it seems that everybody seem, is taking a hit. Is this just the duration of this? And people are just so angry they got to take it out on somebody. How do you explain this?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is a duration. Uh, you know, people's goodwill <laughs> probably evaporated many months ago uh you know and, and and some uh events like you know in most provinces there was some uh part of the government elite that went away over christmas, for instance uh things like that obviously chewed away at it. i mean, I think another thing that has changed is that at the very beginning of the pandemic, there was a very rare unanimity uh in the sense that we were all a bit scared and fearful and not knowing exactly what we were up against, there was a tendency to rally around the leader as time goes on though i mean there's space for politics again and so you know, for most of these premiers, in a way, they've got kind of stuck between two uh, two stools. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, there's been a growth of a sort of anti-mask, anti-lockdown uh, sentiment in many of the provinces. Uh, you know, in many of these provinces uh, held by conservative premiers, uh, and so they're challenging from the right, in many cases, uh, the government in place, uh, and, and pushing those premiers and to say, okay, maybe we have to you know, limit the extent in to, to which we uh, disc- in- inconvenience people. Um, so, uh, but, you know, in doing that, they're never going to please the people who are criticizing them for, you know, shutting down anything. But on the other hand, there's, I think, another mass of the population who feels those those premiers should be going further, that they were too quick to try and reopen after the last wave, that they were too slow to, to heed the advice and, and try and close things down, that they were unwilling to see the spread in the workplace and move on things like sick days. So, you know, I think that's big part of premier horgan's uh, loss of approval in in uh, british columbia so in a way you know they they didn't do enough for a part of their base but they also uh sorry they didn't do enough for uh you know a big mass of the population but they went too far for a part of their base and and so in a way the they they've pleased uh, neither neither group uh you know they, they they really didn't achieve anything at you know preventing this latest wave coming but they didn't keep things as open as uh, certain parts of the population would have wanted. It
0: seems obviously damned if you do, damned if you don't here. Uh, right now, you know, I mean, everybody in southern Ontario, certainly in the greater Toronto Hamilton area, feels like they've been locked down forever. And yet there's lots that say, you know, these lockdowns didn't go far enough, they were opened up too soon. Uh, we opened up too soon, yet we're hearing that same scream now. You know, we're trying to do a lockdown, and people are complaining that golf courses aren't open. And, you know, now the uh, lockdowns have been extended to June 2nd. People are complaining about that. You know, I remember uh, last summer, um You know the mayors of Halton, uh, led by Marianne Mead Ward of Burlington, you know, started a position a petition with all the Halton mayors to follow the science and open up. And then within a week, we were in a massive lockdown. So uh, it seems that you know those that are shouting one thing are shouting something different now. I mean, why are we, we're having the same debates now as we did dur- during Wave One and Wave Two? Yet we don't seem to have learned anything.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think between, you know, the premier and his cabinet and the science table, um, you know, there's been a lack of a clear vision about why the government was doing what it's doing. Uh, And as a result, you get, uh, you know, many groups saying, well, this isn't fair, that isn't fair, we should be doing it differently, because there's not a real Mm -hmm. clear sense of the criteria on which these decisions are being made. And so, I mean, I think in this current moment, when, you know, we know, given transmission, that probably things aren't that bad on uh, golf courses, Uh, But things are really bad in uh, workplaces, and specifically certain kinds of workplaces. And yet the government's, uh, you know, response is to, you know, uh, really cramp down on uh, outdoor, uh, you know, recreation, rather than doing much about what's happening in these, you know, warehouses and fulfillment centers.
0: But so, honestly, so- though, Peter, what do you think? What do you think the leaders of the opposition, whether it's the NDP or the Liberals, would say if all of a sudden golf courses are open? They'd be screaming that you know the rich people are golfing and other people are are, are staying at home. I mean, it's it's. You know, again, I understand your point on the golfing. I think this is totally political because if he does open them up, people will scream about that.
5: Uh, Yeah, and I mean, I came at the same time as he was closing down playgrounds. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I I think, uh, yeah, there will be some... there will be some unha- unhappiness with that, uh you know, as there will be for any decision that's taken I mean the question is is there are grounds on which uh the government can clearly make the case about why it's made these particular decisions, given what we we can see is happening in terms of spread, and I think it's there you know that the government has been pretty inconsistent uh in its arguments i mean I mean in the very moment uh when we closed down schools on the very same day that they were closed down, we had the Minister of Education saying they weren 't going to be closed down or at least you know, within about 48 or 72 hours. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so you know, what was the basis of the evidence they were dealing with and what were the criteria they were applying to make that decision? I think, you know, around those things, the, the, the population loses confidence that there's actually something systematic there. And if things aren't going to be systematic or based on any kinds of criteria, then, yeah, if you if you like the golf and you can't golf, uh, you're going to be, you know, out arguing about that. If you're a mayor of a city, You know, where there isn't a lot of spread in the community, well, you want to make the case to open up because it will probably be uh, economically advantageous to the businesses and people in your city. But, you know, again, if there's not a clear set of criteria about what's guiding these decisions, or it seems to change, even, you know, there are different lockdown colours and codes and what they mean and what can be opened and closed, uh, you know, I I think the population loses confidence that there's actually... Uh, you know, that there's actually a coherent strategy as opposed to something that's being developed on the back of an envelope.
0: Peter Grape with his professor of political science, McMaster University, trust in Canadian political leaders, cratering during the pandemic is the headline. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks. All right. Let's move on. Uh, the battle with COVID-19 continues not only here but around the world. And many have said until we resolve this issue around the world, uh, we will not be safe. Uh, India is still uh, in a bad way, uh, reporting over 4,000 deaths uh, daily. And yet it, we are hearing word that it is starting to plateau. Uh, let's bring in Satish Takar, chair of the Canada India Foundation and is with us now. Satish, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
8: Uh thank you Scott thank you thank you for having me.
0: All right give us a bit of an update here uh Satish uh we hear that you know it's still very 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 dire there but we are uh, at least projecting some sort of a plateau soon. Can you give us an update?
8: Yeah thank you uh, uh Scott uh, uh absolutely the situation is still grim uh, out there uh, still challenging but we can see uh, a bit of the light at the end of the tunnel because the cases has started coming down hope uh, this ter- trend continues uh you know when we saw the last <clears throat> i think on the may 7th the cases were 400 plus plus, uh, 400 thousand plus it touched uh, now the cases have come down to 360 and old so uh, the supply line has improved in india so we're hoping uh, uh, you know this this trend continues and uh, able to kind uh, of control it better We understand
0: that uh, the government of the day there is not uh, considering lockdowns. Uh, They may be individually on on a state-by-state basis, but nothing nationally. Should there be a lockdown there, Satish?
8: I think, Scott, there are many considerations in in terms of the lockdown, as they have seen at the state level, they have given quite a bit uh, flexibility to implement uh, uh, kind of restrictions and uh, limitations how they want to control in in into different parts of the uh, India. And if we look at it like eleven states and union territories, we have seen the cases coming down. And many considerations which uh, I know there is a huge uh, demand for the nationwide uh, uh, kind of a lockdown. But I think the government is still uh, weighing uh, on it uh, in terms of the various consequences of that. So we'll see you know, how how it plays.
0: Has this now pretty much spread to all parts of India, or is it still is it certain hotspots, certain regions?
8: I think there there, there are certain uh, hotspots. As I, as I mentioned, uh, close to eleven states and union territories where where this. Uh, uh, the cases were rising. Uh, some states, like take an example, Maharashtra, which is a Mumbai part of it, uh, Uttar Pradesh, and uh, uh, a few others, where the case, in, even uh, the capital of uh, India, the uh, New Delhi, uh, the cases were uh, in, in very uh, upswing. So the cases are, have started coming down uh, in these places, and uh, I think we have to watch, uh, uh, hope, Fully, this trend continues uh, uh, in near future. We have
0: talked Satish before that India is the world's pharmacy and yet has one of the lower vaccination rates, uh, especially considering they are uh, such a large producer of uh, of vaccine. Uh, we've heard in some states that, uh, that they've uh, suspended giving vaccine to 18 to 44 year olds so they can concentrate on the older uh, populations and give them the second dose. Um, any chatter in India of doing what Canada has done when we experienced a, a, a massive shortage of vaccine is instead of waiting for the second shot, they've just taken everything and, and blasted it out uh, for the first shot and then worried about the second shot uh, a couple of weeks, months uh, from now extending the, the, the timeline between doses uh, of the first and second. Is India considering such a thing rather than dosing up the second dose?
8: See, I I think they are working on multi folds. One is the supply line. How to improve the supply line? Uh, As you know, uh, currently, Covid Shield, which is produced by Serum Institute with with the partnership of Oxford, um, so that uh, uh, supply line is there. They are producing close to, I think, uh, currently eighty to hundred million doses a month. Uh, And uh, now the new uh, indigenously. Uh, developed the vaccine, which is co-vaccine by Bharat Biotech. Uh, they're trying to fast track uh, their, their, uh, launch in, into the, uh, into the market. So that's happening. And another one is Sputnik, uh, the Russian, which, uh, uh, will be produced in, in, in India, uh, with the Dr. Reddy's lab. So they're working on that, how, uh, that supply line can be enhanced, uh, basically that somehow India wants from 7.5 million to 10 million doses a day can be if that can be managed, uh, managed down the road so that need to be worked on uh, that's number 1 and number 2 yes you're right uh, they right now they they are focusing more on the second dose i think uh, another key issue they have to focus on 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 the uh, youth uh, which is you know of course uh, adult uh, 18 and above but under the age of 18 also need to be fast tracked so supply line is the main thing which, which need to be worked on, which I think uh, the government is working very, uh, what we have been learning, they've been working very closely on that. What does India need
0: from other countries at this point?
8: Uh, so I think during this time, uh, India saw, uh, you know, a kind of a, uh, support from every part of the world which, which is uh, really overwhelming and uh, uh, India's need for the raw material for the vaccines is there uh, oxygen situation is coming under control. Um, uh, India obviously you know produces uh, uh, kind of enough capacity of oxygen but it's the kind of a cryogenic uh, containers as well as the logistics issues which they are managing, uh, uh, of course, uh, oxygen concentrators right now, uh, India needs uh, badly, which we are trying also at the Canada India Foundation through our philanthropic arm. We are trying to source some, uh, but uh, hard to get in within Canada. Uh, I think Canada also at the Canada level, we have to enhance and expand our uh, manufacturing capabilities and uh, down the road. Uh, but currently, I think everything uh, uh, goes down to China. Uh, so oxygen concentrators India need uh, at the different parts of uh, India at the state level, uh, which of course, uh, ventilators. Uh, these are the some some items which uh, India need, need right now.
0: Satish Takar with us, Chair of the Canada India Foundation, giving us an update on the situation in India, obviously still uh, in dire need of uh, supplies and such. However, uh, the good news is they are starting to see uh, a little bit of uh, a flattening of this, but again, uh, still in a dire situation uh, in India. Satish, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
8: Be well. Thank you. Thanks, Scott, for having me
0: the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on 900 chml my kid must just dropped a weight upstairs i thought it was going to come through the ceiling did you hear that this is the scott thompson podcast available on apple podcast and google podcast or wherever you get yours and don't forget to subscribe rate and review so you don't miss a thing i'm scott thompson and thanks for listening